The discount retailer Five Below wants consumers to know it's got game. It's jumping onto the esports craze by opening in-store gaming centers. Barney's, on the other hand, may be in its final play. The legacy department store is awaiting final sale to authentic brands and may soon appear as a shop inside of Saks. That is, unless another bidder steps in before this week's deadline. And, this just in, drone delivery is no longer just a pie-in-the-sky idea. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, October 28th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Our guests today include Sucharita Kodali and Shannon Ryan. Sucharita is a retail analyst at Forrester Research, where she's an expert on e-commerce, omnichannel retail, consumer behavior, and trends in the online shopping space. She's also an authority on technology developments that affect the online commerce industry and vendors that facilitate online marketing and merchandising. Shannon Ryan is the Executive Vice President of North America for Valtech. He is an expert in helping brands create digital and physical spaces to drive unparalleled connected experiences. And prior to his current role, Shannon was co-founder and CEO of Nonlinear Creations. Sutrita, Shannon, thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's an impressive set of titles, Sutrita. <laughs> You too, Shannon. Back at you. <laughs> I'm only an expert. You're like a world expert. <laughs> That's we'll what happens when you get to write your own bio. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so should we leave that in or take it out? <laughs> oh, you definitely leave that in. For sure. Sujarina okay, well, and I are people with personalities. We're not, not just, you know, talking heads. No, you want people to feel like we're sitting at a round table together. Everything Sujarina and I do is a fireside chat even if there's no fire. <laughs> there's no fire. Maybe there's marshmallows. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. All right. Let's roll. Let's roll. Five Below is the first retailer we're going to discuss today. And for those of you who are less familiar, it's known for basically it's diverse inventory of gadgets and quirky decor, meme-inspired accessories, because we all need more of those. And now it's inviting the gamer community to come duke it out in its stores. So it partnered with Nerd Street Gamers, and they're investing $12 million into piloting 3,000 square foot esports venues. And these venues will be connected to five select store locations next year. So if this is successful, then the companies plan to open 70 or more, uh, according to reports, you know, over the coming years. So this is pretty big. It's a huge investment. Sutrita, with ICSC reporting an approximate 45% increase in this entertainment square footage in U.S. malls over the past decade, it kind of seems like a risky move for Five Below, considering they're typically in strip malls. Do you agree? Well, I think that one of the strategies that retailers have looked to or what are alternative ways to get traffic to your stores? Are there services or activities that you can provide, whether it's like Michael's doing like craft classes or Apple doing classes of some sort? So I think that it's actually an interesting idea. And um, we know that gaming and you know a lot of multiplayer gaming is becoming increasingly popular. There's a social component to it. So it makes a lot of sense. And I'm frankly surprised that we're hearing this from Five Below and not GameStop and why yeah. we didn't hear it from GameStop like five years ago. <laughs> um, right. But it's, right. Uh, I'll watch it very closely because this could be kind of a way for retailers to look to innovate themselves out of the challenges of either challenged real estate or inventory problems. So I, I actually like it. I think it's an interesting concept. So, I mean, I'm intrigued as well, for sure. Um, I think yet again, it demonstrates the fundamental challenge that retailers are facing these days in terms of customer acquisition. 
in terms of understanding new and novel ways to drive the proper audience to your store in order to achieve that overall gain that you're looking for. I'm happy that Five Below didn't do a pop-up, which seems to be the answer (laughs) for most ever other retailer. But yet again, I think it shows that retailers are struggling to understand how to build community in the physical world. And while I believe they've appropriately identified the right audience for their retail mix in terms of who that gamer is, although I would say it maybe skews a little bit to the older side than what they think, it'll be interesting to see how they monetize that strategy within the environment that they're building. Gaming and gamers are very immersive when they're in that moment. And I wonder whether or not the crossover effect that they're hoping for actually materializes? Well, I don't know the purchasing behavior of that demographic, but what we do know is that getting bodies in a store or in any venue is generally a good thing in retail. So I would look at even the Apple stores as a great example. A significant part of their foot traffic is not people purchasing anything, but just people looking for service through the Genius Bar. So I think that that same idea of just getting people in and if you can get people there and they're in the store, they're browsing. I mean, this is the demographic. It's a young millennial, Gen Z, tween demographic, really, that is Five Below is most popular with. And if they can get those people into the store and even browsing around the store for, you know, sometime in between games or um, as they go to get a snack, I think that is, that would be a good thing for them. And it would drive an energy to the store that, you know, supplements what they maybe already have. Yeah. A a lot of that brings me back to our good friend, Doug Stevens, who I believe has been on this podcast a few times already as well, where he is advocating for a new set of metrics around evaluating stores success that is much more focused in terms of thinking about it the way we think about media in terms of exposure, brand impressions, etc., that the transaction by definition doesn't need to take place in the physical store. And if, as you mentioned, if they find a way to drive that community to the store, it brings an energy, it brings a certain vibe, and hopefully that translates itself again to the positive net outcome that they're all looking for. It's just historically, that's a very fickle group. And I'd be interested to know in terms of what those setups look like, sort of what the cost associated to those build-outs are. Because again, this brings up another question where a lot of what we see in the retail world is to build these immersive experience, these sort of experience stores are super high-end, high-touch, high sort of production value type equations. And if Five Below has found a way to do this, to tap into that sort of experience, but do it in a very cost-effective way. Well, then they might be on to something. Yeah, and that's a good point, Jan. Actually, I looked into it a bit because I was like, I don't know about that $12 million number for expanding these completely new connected venues to Five Below. Because just last year, there was a huge news about an esports stadium opening in Arlington. So it was a revamped old convention center. So the infrastructure was there, but they spent 10 million on just that one stadium, but it was 100,000 square feet. So the total of Five Below's investments only 15% of that. But if you look at like the cost per square foot, we're talking $800 per square foot for Five Below versus 100 cost per square foot for this huge 
East Sports Center in Arlington. So I, I do wonder if it's um, the right size. 3,000 square feet seems really boutique compared to all the other esports stadiums that opened recently. Well, as the father of a 12-year-old who would look at it and say, $12 million for a gaming room is a bargain. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be good to see um, what happens there. I think there's a lot of room for innovating the sports stadium because they've remained largely unchanged and kind of how they look and how they're set up. So I think there's definitely some opportunity there. So it'll be interesting to see where Five Below goes. Indeed. For sure, yeah. Some great thoughts on Five Below. And now we're flipping from discount to luxury as our next retailer to discuss is Barney's. So after a few months of uncertainty, just last week, they reached a stocking horse agreement to sell its assets to brand developer Authentic Brands Group and investment bank B. Riley Financial for $271 million. And this deal is set to be finalized at auction in the coming days. However, Reuters reported an 11th hour bid from an Israeli businessman, Samuel Ben Avram. And although it was rejected, he reportedly has until October 31st to submit a new bid. Now, if the deal goes through with authentic brands, Saks owner Hudson's Bay announced plans to license the Barney's name, open Barney's branded small shops inside of Saks locations, and ultimately uh, likely close the majority of the remaining seven Barney's locations. It's still unclear if its iconic Manhattan flagship would remain up and running, but some interesting things here to consider. Shannon, what is your take on Barney's potentially living as a shop in shop inside of Saks? I'm not surprised that they're looking for a way to potentially still capitalize on the brand equity that is contained within the name of Barney's. Obviously, in terms of a physical location with the seven stores, um, and a struggling sort of online presence, they just didn't find the magic formula to be able to allow themselves to be able to continue to push forward. But there is still brand equity contained within the name of Barney's. And so the shop within the shop idea might be a way to keep that loyal customer base that was always was and always will be a Barney's customer still accessible and prevalent, but at a much sort of more affordable cost base. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it a little puzzling. I don't know what it means to have a multi-brand, multi-category brand within another multi-brand. Multi-con, yeah. yeah, right? I mean, it'd be putting like a Target shop in a Walmart and mm-hmm. it's like, well, what does that mean? Like, I mean, is it the private label stuff? Is it because so much of the merchandise overlaps anyway? I mean, I think that it would make it would almost make more sense. And I know that we've slammed pop-up stores already uh, <laughs> within, you know, the last few minutes, but within five minutes of the podcast. Right, yeah. right, right. But I actually think that that's a great way for a brand that resonates to continue to offer something or do something like, I mean, we're hearing like what Toys R Us is doing, right? I mean, they're doing, mm-hmm. they want to preserve the brand online, or I guess they're redirecting it to Target. To Target and, yep. and then they're going to have some small format experience space stores. And maybe that's potentially a better approach. But I mean, but the challenge is I don't know what assets are going to be left. I mean, you know, is it just the inventory? Is it right. the brand name? Because, you know, obviously there's no shortage of real estate right now with Barney's. Nope. The problem is that they can't pay their bills. And so do they really need more real estate when the real estate problems were what got them to where we are now? For sure. Maybe we're not giving the benefit of the doubt to someone like Authentic Brands in terms of the way they're thinking about what an in-store boutique would be. Fair Uh, enough. Yeah. Quite honestly, I mean, I think we all have a sort of vision of that per the makeup counters of what that actually is, right? A couple of display units and a sign 
um, hanging from the ceiling saying, welcome to Barney's. But possibly if they add in this element of scarcity and timing that is the fundamental driver of a pop-up and add it within the store footprint of those existing locations, then maybe there is something innovative to do with that brand equity. But Sujurita, I, I agree, a house of brands within a house of brands. And how do they go about the merchandising of that in their retail locations? I think that's going to be a real challenge for them if that's the route they take. Right, right. Or, you know, I mean, it seems like a lot of these brands that go bankrupt that still have equity, they essentially just live online. And, you know, I don't know that there's a great solution for living offline unless you maybe license the brand to others and let others figure out how they want to take advantage of that name. Certainly. And I like what both of you said. I think Suchirita had some really good points on why it's puzzling. A department store inside of a department store doesn't make a whole lot of sense, especially when we see brands like Target having the Disney sections. That makes sense. Kohl's is having, it's curated by Kohl's sections where they're switching out brands like every quarter. So I know Love Pop and Adore Me were some of the brands they're rolling out first. And mm-hmm. that makes sense like with what Shannon said about the scarcity and timing. Oh, it's only going to be here for a certain amount of time. So if they can execute it well in that sense, I think they'll have some success. But yeah, maybe they'll end up just going online. Right. Or I mean, even if it's like a department, I mean, Sephora did have shop and shops and like JCPenney's and, mm-hmm. and I think Kohl's as well, right? So that made sense because Sephora didn't necessarily have an overlap inventory mix. And it was the statement that that retailer was making for beauty. So that makes sense. Um, So if there's a vision and there's really distinct clarity around what does this stand for, I think that there's certainly potential. I think one of the interesting things that something like an authentic brand, part of me thinks this is distressed money chasing bad assets. I mean, I'm not so sure I would want to be in the department store business these days at all. And therefore, to buy another store that essentially has a similar format. I mean, there are way smarter people in the world than I am for sure who have thought through this problem. But I really struggle to see how that works in a way that drives the bottom line. And maybe I'm just missing something, but that's a category that I would not want to be in these days. I agree. It's a tough, tough space. And um, yeah, yeah. and I mean, these particular department stores are heavily anchored in apparel, which is one of the most challenging Challenging categories. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. I mean, as a Canadian, we won't even begin to talk about taking (laughs) Hudson Bay private. We'll just let that go. (laughs) Well, certainly be interesting to see what happens Barney's and, you know, it's just a waiting game for us, I guess, to to follow that story. We are spectators at the car crash. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Speaking of waiting, that brings us to our next topic, because I think we can all agree that waiting at the pharmacy is not something we are happy to do. Might have been convenient 10 years ago to have a drive through, but today people are getting prescriptions delivered. And now we might have drones delivering the prescriptions. So that comes with an announcement from UPS that it's partnering with CVS to launch home drone delivery uh, for prescription and convenience items. So interestingly, Walgreens is already piloting this. They actually began offering deliveries in Christianburg, Virginia last week. That is a small town. It's like 22,000 residents, but they are maybe a bit ahead of the game. 
Right now, they're trialing with a limited number of products, though, so Walgreens is not doing prescriptions yet, but they plan to. So both programs are game changer, potentially for U.S. drone delivery, which is kind of stalled to lift off the ground since Amazon announced its plans with Prime Air back in 2013. So with that, Sutrita, many claim we're still, you know, years away from delivering on half-hour shipping drone promises, at least in the U.S., Would you agree with this? I think we're still quite a ways away. So there are three different types of consumer delivery destinations, right? It's either a rural delivery, it's a suburban delivery, or it's an urban delivery. For the most part, there are probably other exceptions, but that I think encompasses the vast majority of deliveries. Drone deliveries in urban environments, dense urban environments, are a non-starter right now, right? I mean, they need to figure out how you're going to essentially, the only option is to land on a roof. And um, the rooftop (laughs) landing is just an ecosystem that is possible, but it it would take a while. And it's probably best suited for like new cities or new buildings. The suburban environment makes some sense, but the delivery ecosystem still needs to be built out. There are all kinds of rules and regulations about who owns how much of the airspace above a home. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do with treetops? What do you do with electrical wiring? you know, sprinkler systems. I've heard of things like using tethers to release packages onto like front yards and whatnot, which is possible, but I think that that's still hypothetical. I don't know how realistic that is. The rural use case is the one that probably makes the most sense because those are the most expensive deliveries to make. And those are where you're not going to run into as many regulations and as many issues with finding a drop spot for a drone delivery. But the rural delivery space is also the smallest percent of all of your deliveries as well. So, you know, kind of how much of the delivery ecosystem are you really solving for when you, when you solve for that. So I think it's still a, a ways away. I have some operational questions too, because there are a lot of really smart engineers and computer scientists that are building these drones, but I don't know that they're thinking about it from a logistics and an operation standpoint, because um, a lot of these drones go like five miles or less, although there's some, I think, military-grade drones that go farther. Many of them don't carry more than five pounds. And again, there's some military-grade drones that go quite fast and, you know, farther and can carry things heavier, but they're military grade, so they're going to be much more expensive. And drones only go with a package in one direction, usually, you know, to one place. Right now, you know, in delivery, the trick to making, creating efficiency is density. So in an hour, you can have 20 deliveries an hour in a truck and, you know, kind of to deliver those same 20 packages by drone you would need a lot of drones. And, you, you know, and I don't know that people have thought through that piece of the equation. And also there's a lot of, you know, I mean, every time a drone drops off a package, unless you're picking up something, the return trip is going to be completely empty versus carriers are able to route their packaging so that there's only one return trip that's empty. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes they can even pick up like returns or other reverse logistics. This is why you have Sujarita on the podcast, Julia. I think the only thing that I would add in here is this is primarily an exercise in marketing hype, in my opinion, mm-hmm. still. There is not a viable business model here that makes sense at this stage for what we're talking about. We're trying to solve the last mile problem. And I would suggest that 
where I see drones essentially operating in a bit is in the area of sort of depot or drop-off point distribution. The ability to get products closer to a customer Mm -hmm. such that they can be picked up or dropped off in a more economical fashion. But to be the last mile part of that equation, I don't see that. Mm -hmm. So I see it kind of as an opportunity where you might have sort of, you know, drone station depots that are doing almost just-in-time type logistics for warehousing for popular products based on algorithms and other such things that get them closer to where they need to go. But I don't see it as the last mile solution. Right. And Shannon, I think what you're describing is is actually in the one market where they do have some drone delivery, which is in China, where companies like JD.com actually do use drones, but it's more sort of warehouse to warehouse. Like right. you know, they're going from their central distribution center and sending packages to rural destinations where it would be otherwise very difficult to get a vehicle. So that's exactly you know, kind of the case that to the degree that it's happening anywhere, that's what is happening. It's that classic William Gibson quote of the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed, right? (laughs) You know, this idea that we need to iron out where the points of distribution are such that it serves all markets equally. Right, right. And I mean, your point's a really astute one, which is that this is a roundabout solution and not the most efficient one to last mile delivery. And should we really just be spending time talking about locker or pickup right. stations or deliveries in the I night. A, you know? a network of pneumatic tubes that shoot things directly <laughs> into your directly house. Directly into your house. That would be exactly. awesome, Shannon. God forbid we go outside and walk and pick up something. No, uh, so inconvenient. <laughs> Hyperloop from you yes, know, the post exactly. office to our home. <laughs> Do not worry. Elon Musk will save us all. In Elon's voice. I love it. Yeah, that's those are good points. You know, I think there's another, it's a PR play, definitely a little bit, because it's not the whole story about these partnerships. I mean, Walgreens, you can go drop off your FedEx package um, and they'll ship it for you. So I, just, I think there's I can't more help behind but the think on the Walgreens of some sort of nefarious cartel just sitting there and plucking <laughs> off medication in the sky as a business model for them. Right? Yeah. I mean, to ship medications via drone, it just sounds so risky. There's so many things that could go wrong. Well, that brings us to the end of today's rundown. So thank you very much, Suturita and Shannon, for being on the show. I really appreciated it. Thanks for having us, Julia. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Excellent. Love to have you back. Anytime. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.